When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. When we take control of our lives and our destiny, we're a small country, but we punch way above our weight. Like, I'm filming now at this stage, to be honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was horrendous. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. There's a nice mist, a very nice mist up there on them thar hills. You can't quite see where the airport should be. That's a very promising sign of the weather to come. We're going to get up to the low to mid-20s today, tomorrow, Thursday, and looking at the apps. And I know I'm probably boring the pants off, you know, with looking at the various apps, but they just look really good up to this day week. Right through the weekend, Saturday afternoon, plan a barbecue. Sunday afternoon, plan the beach. Friday, get out of job early and go do something with yourself because Friday, Saturday, Sunday and even into Monday going to be really lovely weather. Warmest day I'm seeing here Thursday uh, but not a cloud in the sky, literally not a cloud in the sky Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and possibly even into Monday evening. Loving it, absolutely loving it and that mist over the hills is a sign of good things to come. Good morning to you Tuesday. I'll find out more about the Army Rangers and what they're at uh, in Afghanistan or what they'll be at in Afghanistan a little bit later on. We're lucky that we actually have uh, a TD, an independent TD, who was a former uh, second-in-command of the Army Ranger Wing. So we'll find out a little bit more about what they actually do. A lot of it's classified and they can't tell you. But what they'll be doing in Afghanistan, which is very much... A logistical mission, very much a mission to use their skills to get people out to negotiate, to work logistics. Um, So they're gone there. We'll find out more a little bit later on. First of all, though, it's around this day next week, 1st of September. Pretty much everybody will be back at school. I know some people are starting school on Thursday of this week, but next week... 
1st of September, everybody will be heading back to school. And look, we look at the daily numbers in hospital. We look at the daily numbers in ICU. We look at the daily case numbers. We know that the vaccination program is just brilliant. We've got one of the highest rates of vaccination in all of the EU. In fact, in all of the Northern Hemisphere, we've got one of the highest rates of adult vaccination in Ireland against COVID-19. But a warning that we are ill-prepared for reopening the schools. It's the dangerous formula reopening the schools in the position we're currently in. Now, I'm sure you're not saying we should keep them closed, Professor Jerry Killeen. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you doing? How are you, sir? You're not saying we should keep them closed, but you're saying it's a we're in a risky situation opening them. Uh, it's not so much opening them as the position we put ourselves when we open them. So right now we're opening with you know close enough to 2,000 cases a day. Uh, you know, predominantly in younger people. We've got indoor hospitality open. Uh, we've been having our overseas holidays. And we've just had 40,000 people in the stadium in Dublin um, and lots of uh, celebrations of some fantastic hurling um, occurring around the country. So it's really not a great formula in advance of reopening schools and then also the Department of Education's guidance on how you know on that and the support for schools is is just unacceptably inadequate. So um so let's hope we can keep them open. Um but you know to do that we need to to give schools priority. Um and and we haven't done that over the course of the summer. Are we so, not at a point though, Jerry, where we now have huge numbers of adults vaccinated and we're working our way all the way down to the over twelves eventually and the HSE tell us that we'll be at a point of almost full adult vaccination by the end of September, start of October. So where's the problem? Uh, well the problem is is um when you've got something as transmissible as Delta. And uh, we can express that as a basic reproduction number. So we'd say, you know, if we didn't do anything, if we just lived our lives like we did in, in 2018 or 2019, then you know, the average case of Delta would give rise to eight more cases. Uh, now, to get to the stage where your epidemic doesn't sustain itself, you need to make sure that seven of those people don't get infected. Now, even with a perfect vaccine, if you assume seven out of eight people have to be vaccinated, then that's 87.5%. And that's 87.5% of the entire population, including mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not there yet. And our vaccine, you know, there's lots of things that happen in the real world that mean it's going to have to be higher than 87.5%. So, for example, the vaccines aren't perfect. They're very, very good, but, but they're not perfect. Uh, we also have, you know, we, we don't all mix homogeneously as a population. So we have, you know, um, clusters, notably schools. And schools is a place where we bring, primary schools are a place where we bring, you know, hundreds of unvaccinated young people together in a congregated setting. So, so you know, at current, current vaccine coverage levels will not be enough to stop this. Mm. Uh, do, do we not know be, now, because or, or, it was questioned at the start of all of this, but do we not know now that children are not vectors, Jerry? That they they're not super spreaders. We originally thought they were, but they're not. Well, but the, that narrative, unfortunately, it isn't true. And unfortunately, 
you know, hospitals in the States are, are filling up with children. We've seen the tragedies of children's hospitals in in Brazil. Um, and, you know, the, the Brazil experience was pre-Delta. Yeah. So, you know, that's not true. If you look at um, serological studies, which look at, you know, which look in a very sensitive way back into the, the past infection history of people, um, even here in Ireland, those serological studies show a pretty flat age prevalence profile, which means children get infected too. And there's a whole body of um, high-quality international literature documenting the contribution of schools to transmission systems. So I know that narrative's out there, but it, it's just simply not accurate. Yeah. There was a study from the HSE uh, published, I think yesterday was it, that since the start of the pandemic, we've had just over or just under 46,500 cases of COVID among children in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also got to remember that those are the documented ones. So in epidemiology, we never get to see the whole iceberg. You know, we get to see we get to see the tip of it, and the you know the size of that fraction really depends on on who we're looking at and their likelihood of um, of appearing on our radar, as it were. Now, with with kids, um, those probabilities are much more lower because they don't tend to get as sick. So um, so there's there's a lot more kids have had uh, COVID than than you'll see in those stats. Yeah. And you know, and the, the the hospitalisation rates for kids are much lower than for everybody else, but they're still, you know, they're still high enough to yeah. um, to be of concern. But the big concern with kids is is long COVID, and those rates amongst cases in children yeah. are in the region of seven to eight percent, which, as a parent, you know, certainly gets my attention. Yeah. Yeah, and and I know that some of your colleagues, some of the public health doctors, senior public health doctors, are Dr. Scally, for example, very very concerned about the extent of long COVID in kids. It's maybe one in ten, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we're not sure about the exact numbers, but but even if you go for the lower end of the range, it's it's too high. Right. It's too high, and and that can have a big effect on a on a kid. Yeah. You know, at a, at a crucial time, and yeah, you know, when you're growing up. You don't want to lose months or years to, to just not being entirely yourself. Yeah, yeah. You reckon that it's time for parents to have a, a long, hard think. About what? Well, I guess, um, you know, about our priorities, I think we, um, first of all, you know, if we do want our school to open safely, we're going to have to give up some other things. Um, you know, our, our meaningful summer, unfortunately, is going to have consequences for what happens in our schools. Um, and I also think that, you know, uh, the, when the schools get their carbon dioxide monitors, and I hope they will, you know, I think there's going to be a big learning process about how safe our schools are and are not. And and there's going to have to be some pushback. And I think the time for kind of eggheads like myself um, in this pandemic, you know, should be really coming to an end and it's really time for you know all, all the information is out there it's time for the application of common sense uh, particularly amongst parents and um, and 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 just just you know work with your school work with your teachers if you know from those carbon dioxide monitors that there is a problem and that school is not as safe as, as it needs to be you know that's not the fault of the school that's not the fault of the teachers but we're going to have to do something about that. And if you can't get your uh, carbon dioxide level in the room below 800 ppm, then 
then it needs reduced occupancy. It needs, um, you know, we're going to have to think some blended learning options. Um, and, uh, yeah, it might need HEPA filters. Uh, you know, structural fixes, you know, that will take too long, I think. Yeah. So, so I think we just have to have um, realistic expectations about what's going to be ahead of us. Yeah. And for, you know, for school management... Uh, Jerry, and look, <laughs> we, we've had this before. So, so, so many of, of our listeners, when when you come on to talk about what, unfortunately, is harsh reality, and and it comes from your own experience, and we all appreciate your input. If you were talking to school management, teachers, principals, and giving them advice for the next five to six weeks, what would it be? Uh, two things: uh, masks. Uh, you know, I really like Victoria's approach to it, that for primary school kids, they say, listen, we recognize that not all kids are going to, you know, they're going to struggle to wear a mask or they might wear it wrong. And, you know, they're, they're kids. So it's it's a strong recommendation, but it's not a mandate in Victoria. You know, it's very clear. They want primary school kids to wear masks, but they do have a sense of humor about the, the practicalities of this. So, so we're just everybody expected to do their best. And then the other big, big one is ventilation. Um, and so you make sure your school gets their carbon dioxide monitors, make sure. And then there's a learning process. because You don't really know how that room performs or how best to ventilate it until you've got the kids in the class. And, and, and it's a trial and error learning process. Uh, be mindful of cross flow. You know, you might be better off with, with one window open and one door open on the other side rather than all the windows on one side open. And, um, and and that's uh, that's a learning experience all the schools are going to have to go to, through. And those are the two best weapons we have, really, until mm. vaccination comes through for, for younger children as well. And I think the research is, is ongoing into that. We may have something by the end of the year. Do you share that optimism? Yeah, I do, absolutely. And I'm, I'm even more optimistic about 2022 because uh, some of those second-generation um, vaccines... I think we discussed before, they are coming through. And so, you know, we can look forward to a time when ourselves and, and lots of other people around the world who've been waiting longer than us will be jabbed with something that will give us, you know, more robust protection yeah. against a, a wider variety of variants. And, uh, and then we can really start looking forward to, we can start asking ourselves, you know, how do we bring this to a, a decisive end? And, um, and, and do so securely. Jerry, I know you're a sports fan, and I know that you would have watched the match on, on Sunday and for, for, the, for the spirit of the game and for the atmosphere. Were you worried, though, when you saw the buzz in Croke Park? Were you kind of divided between watching sport and enjoying sport as a fan, and then from your own area of expertise, were you worried about what you saw? <laughs> well, I'm absolutely right on both ends. I mean, that was some of the most Amazing hurling, and um, you know, pretty good for my wife, for whom who's, who's not Irish, and for whom the whole Irish cultural adventure yeah. is totally fascinating. I mean, what better than a great All Ireland? What final? did she think of it, by the way? Was it her first time to watch a big match on, t- on a hurling game? Absolutely, she loved it. Absolutely loved it. And um, of course, it was a bit painful for for all of us here in Cork, but um, but you know, I mean, what a display yeah. by Limerick! So we all enjoyed it. So and yeah, so seeing what happened in the stadium you know that's uh, that's not going to help um, but my bigger concern is this, 
all the other things that happened around the stadium, but particularly around the country. I mean, I saw some of the TV footage from, um, you know, uh, GAA clubs in in Limerick with whole families, uh, including the kids, um, you know, none of whom have, you know, the older ones don't have access to vaccines. Uh, and, you know, and if you're a little Limerick fan in particular, you know, how could you not get excited and let your guard down? And, um, and so, you know, as per the Euros, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be consequences of all that. And and the other problem is now, of course, that gets everybody else up in arms asking for their sector to be reopened. Yeah. And we're already in trouble. So, you know, two wrongs don't make the right. And, um, you know, I, I guess one of the things that I always learned from from um, from working in really high-risk environments is that we all make mistakes. The trick is to recognise that they are mistakes and don't repeat them. Uh, I get very nervous about working with people who make a mistake you know, um, they don't get eaten uh, by <laughs> the wild animals that live in our environment or they don't get kidnapped in some of the kind of dangerous urban settings and they think that's okay and they just keep on going. Yeah. So, and, and they keep taking those risks. So, you know, uh, Sunday was a mistake on epide- in epidemiological terms and um, it would be, you know, let's not double down on that mistake. Lastly, someone has been on the phone, a post-primary teacher has a vulnerable child at home themselves. Which masks would you recommend? Ah, okay. Um, I just recently, through Aoife McLeish, I got put in touch with a manufacturer of a reusable, washable FFP2 grade mask. I think the company is Vectura, and they do take orders from individuals. Um, you know, paid by credit card. So that would be, that's what I've ordered in for my own family. And I haven't tried them yet, but it looks like a, a really good option. Because mm. children, I guess, the mask, and I suppose that has to be comfortable. It has to be easy to wear for them. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, the worst mask is the one that you don't wear. So, so yeah. you know, even a face covering helps. Whatever you can manage, but uh, if you want something that's, that's really um, top-notch, um, I would try those reusable FFP2s, particularly for vulnerable individuals. And by text, he wants school children to wear masks. Come off it. You, that's a, there's a lot of that out there, Jerry. Uh, I know, but uh, my experience with working with kids is, is the kids are actually much easier to work with. They're, they're more flexible. They're more adaptable. They don't have, they're not as fixed in their ways as us grown-ups. And, um, you know, the, the the adults, you know, kids rely on us to look after them, to make the right decisions. We, we run, all us grown-ups, we run society. So, you know, um, we put them in this position, all of us. Um, and, you know, I just think we've got an obligation to to look after them. And, you know, and balancing up all the, you have the same struggle with my kids, my my. my my little fella only knows pandemic Ireland. He's never lived here without a pandemic. He's never gone to school without a mask. How old is he, Jerry? He's struggling with it. He's 13. Okay. You know, so, so no, it's pretty tough on him. But, um, you know, I've got to, as a parent, I've got to balance that up against the risks of, of him getting long COVID and, and, um, and, and, you know, not knowing how long that will go on for. So, um, so... Yeah, no, these are difficult decisions. They're, it is a balance of risks. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm always very sensitive to 
you know, parents, we have very strong feelings about our kids and we all have to make our own decisions or, or make very careful collective decisions based on lots of discussion. So you know, I'm not going to tell anybody you know, what to think or what to do in relation to their own children, but that's my personal perspective. Yeah. Last text here says, I can't open windows during class time because it's too bright to use the projectors and stuff like that. But if I in, in open all the windows during, say, a free class or a class where I'm not using a projector, does that help? It will help, but but not enough. I think you know, to maintain constant airflow... Um, you need a mask. You, you need a window open all the time if you can do you it. You do, you do. So, uh, and, you know, it's one of those things that nobody can tell you how to do it for your particular room. You need the CO2 monitor. Uh, okay. You've got to try different things. Here's, here's hoping to... they, get loads, they get loads of them out there. And very final one, Jerry. the name of those masks, again... The, the... Uh, they, I think it's Vecura, V-E-C-U-R-A. Okay. Um, but I can check the spelling now. On, I'll, I'll open let, up the let the lads know, and we'll, 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 we'll mention it to, to, to listeners. Jerry, thanks very much, as always. That's Professor Jerry Killeen, the AXA Research Chair of Applied Pathogen Ecology at UCC. But he's okay with us just calling him Professor Jerry because that's such a long title. <laughs> thanks, Jerry. 1850-715-996. And I don't care that a lot of people go, oh, no, when... I bring Jerry on because I tell you why the man's been right an awful lot more than he's been wrong over the last 18 months so every so often we touch base with him for a little bit of wisdom 1850-715-996 Can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Douglas Court Shopping Centre. They've got everything you need and more. Visit douglascourt.ie. Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96 FM. I'll come back to some of your comments on COVID, uh, one or two coming in. Jerry tends to attract them, but that's okay too. 1850-715-996. I see there in the last couple of days, you probably have noticed a Tinder. If you're a user thereof, I'm not. Wouldn't They wouldn't have me, I suppose. But no, seriously. They have said that they will make ID verification available to all members around the world. Now, one thing that we have heard about Tinder over the years is people, some people have had awful experiences. When they go to meet someone through Tinder, you genuinely have no idea who you're meeting until you turn up. And it can go very well or it can go seriously pear-shaped and you can be in terrible trouble before you know where you are. I did speak to a guy one time who met somebody on Tinder, had no idea who he was meeting and turned out that he ended up getting quite badly beaten up. And that was his experience. Um, And now ID verification is going to be available everywhere. 
Japan have had it for a while. Uh, Mary Crilly with the Cork Sexual Violence Centre. Mary, it, it, it's only common sense, isn't it? Good morning to you. Good morning. I think it's common sense. I think it's safety for its members. I mean, I would have come across people who have met on Tinder and who are really happy together and, you know, have a future together or whatever. Mm. Um, a lot of people, unfortunately, won't even say they met on Tinder. There's still a bit of, oh, my God, is that the only way you could meet somebody? But I think for a lot of people, it is very valuable. Now, uh, why I'd love to see it mandatory is, like yourself, we've come across people who have been raped or have been sexually assaulted after meeting somebody from Tinder. And, I mean, the thing is, the, the sex offenders, as you know, those reports there last week about the numbers of them out in supervision in the community, about 170 or something. But then you've hundreds who have never been convicted who are out in the community anyway. And, you know, these guys are very good at grooming and manipulating and will come across as, you know, very nice, very manipulative, very cunning, whereas the ordinary guy, I think, on Tinder might come across as being awkward, might come across as being, this really feels really weird trying to chat somebody up in this kind of method, where the other guy will come across as a total expert and I know what I'm doing and grooming her, basically. You know, we have women, you know, who we met maybe in their 40s who felt so ashamed because they might have used us, met a guy who seemed really nice. Even when they met him that evening with friends, he seemed really nice. And then after that, everything changed. Mm. Is it naive and, uh, of me to suggest? Uh, sorry, you were saying, no, go Mary. On, go on. Is it naive of me to suggest that it's a no-brainer that Tinder would ha- or any app like that would have a person's proper identity? Like, what's what's the point of entering a dating field and not giving your proper name and your proper identity? Well, I suppose you can operate there and. You know, plain sight, and you can do whatever you want and not be accountable. The other side is, I know a lot of young women would have said that they want to try it without kind of giving away information about themselves in case they met somebody who they didn't like, and then that person knew who they were or had their Facebook account or all that yeah. kind of stuff. So they're sworn against. I can understand that, but I think there needs to be, you know, straight down the line. If you're going on a site like this, people need to know who you are, and the ID I think needs to be mandatory. And then everybody knows when they do go on where they stand. Yeah. And at least if you felt there was somebody on there stalking you or somebody there who you felt uncomfortable with, you knew exactly who he was because right now you don't. Yeah. And do you have some any comeback if if you have an unpleasant experience on Tinder? Like do you have any comeback against the against the platform, against the operators? I don't think so. And I mean what I find happens is the shame comes into it about how stupid was I to do this, how stupid was I at this age to think that at least you know, a really nice person like this. How stupid was I to go off and meet somebody who I really didn't know? So even if they did have come back, they won't go for it. They won't want to be known. They won't want to be seen to have fallen for this. Yeah. In Japan, they've got to use a passport or even a driver's licence to verify themselves. With, with, do you think that... It is it's a no-brainer, like you're saying. It's like, you know, all the stuff that's, that's going on now about, you know, OnlyFans kind of closing down. It's not just because of the content they have. Again, OnlyFans is back to ID. Back to kind of they can't verify the age of people using it or the age of people on it. So I think ID all around the place is a huge issue. Mm. Just want to bring something else to you there, Mary, while I have you. Front page of the Examiner's Day, and it's widely reported in the papers. Almost one in five secondary school boys are, the word used is neutral on the issue of consent in sexual activities. Uh, 18% of boys are neutral as to whether consent should be required. 3% actually disagree that that, 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 that consent should be required. Were you worried about those findings? 
I think it's very disappointing. Like um, I think a number of years ago, it probably would have been a lot higher. I think a European study there, even a couple of years ago, found it a lot higher. But I, I think it's really disappointing. I think we all need to cop on like that. It should be 100% at this time that people know what consent is. And again, I'd go back to those boys if somebody was, you know, abusing their sister, but they feel that consent was needed. It's back to kind of the old thing where the boys will you know, allowed to try it out and the girls are kind of the gatekeepers. But the idea of 18% thinking there's no need for consent is appalling. Now, it's a lot lower than it would have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But but like you said, it's it's not low enough just yet. So what do we do to get... I, what think, do we we do? Keep the, I think what you've been doing for years, and I mean, if you see the change and the difference, I think it's because people are talking about it. And I think even people listening to this programme might even talk to their sons today and say, really what you think about this and really consent is needed. And that's how it'll change just by keeping the conversation going. All right, it really will. Okay. And by, you know, by UCG who, or Galway University who are doing amazing stuff with their active consent campaign. That's how we make changes. Okay. And of course, as parents, talk to your boys. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thanks very much, Mary. Mary Quilly from Cork Sexual Violence Centre, 1850 715996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. So nine members of Ireland's Rangers, Army Rangers, Special Forces are on their way to Afghanistan. They may even be there uh, now. Uh, they went via Paris and they're going to help evacuate the remaining Irish citizens. They'll have a couple of uh, foreign affairs officials with them. They'll be stationed at the airport in Kabul and then will liaise, I love that word, will liaise with their opposite numbers in other forces to get the 36 remaining citizens out. It is not a military mission uh, by any means. It is a logistics mission to get these people out. Cahal Berry is a TD, but he's also the former uh, second-in-command of the Irish Ranger Wing, so has a particular insight into an operation like this. Cahal, good morning. Uh, good morning, PJ. Good to speak with you. These are the the best of the best, the the, the top of 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 our, of our our armed forces. Even the number of them that are there at any one time is classified by security. So that'll tell you. So what do they do, Carl? Um, well, so basically, the, the range wing are being deployed um, today and over the next forty-eight hours, basically to Kabul. And the main reason they're being deployed is because uh, they're a special forces unit. They they represent the top one percent of Irish Defence Force people, and they're really going to plug a gap on, on the tarmac in in Kabul airport. And what I mean by that is, what what the Irish rescue has lacked over the last week is that we've really lacked boots on the ground, a physical presence at the airport. And we know from our pandemic experience that some jobs can be done remotely and others can't. And coordinating a, a complex multinational uh, rescue effort is one of those jobs that can't be done remotely. You need people on the ground who are optimistic and opportunistic and can take advantage of circumstances as they change. That's, that's what they're going to bring to the table. Now, some of these members may well have been in Afghanistan before or at least would have served time overseas, quite a lot of time overseas. So they'll be familiar with the territory. Uh, absolutely. And look, these would have been a hand-picked uh, select bunch, but any member of the range is a highly experienced, highly mature, thinking soldier, basically. They, they really are at the, the top end of, of their profession, and they have vast experience both operating
operationally and from a training perspective all over the world. Some of them will have been on the uh, the Libyan extraction uh, in 2011 as well, when the Gaddafi regime was uh, was overthrown and Irish citizens had to be had to be withdrawn uh, from Libya through Malta and back to Dublin. And they're they're only the missions that we know about. And um, they're the ones that are in the public domain. There's a lot of these missions that take place very very discreetly, um, mm. both literally and uh, metaphorically below the radar over the last little while as well. Yeah, trying to find out about you know who they are and what they do. So much of it is classified. You you were a member yourself, Carl. So maybe you could over over the kind of training that they have, the kind of additional training that a ranger has. What what is it? Yeah, so, so basically you have to be a, a full-time member of the Defence Forces, first of all, and, and you apply then to do a, a nine-month selection course. So about, you know, about 15% of the people uh, who apply for the course will, will eventually pass. So that just tells you the, the, how difficult it is uh, to get in. But what, what you do when you when you get into the unit, then, is you spend a lot of time training and operating with, with the Special Forces community around the world. And uh, a lot of the, the rangers deploying to Kabul uh, over the next little while and they'll be on first name terms with, with uh, special forces units from, from all over the world. They would have worked uh, in continental Europe, they would have worked in, in North America, worked in Central America and in the South Pacific as well. So it, it's really important from an operational perspective that the groundwork has been laid years in advance. And to be fair as well, there's an excellent relationship between the Army Ranger Wing and the Department of Foreign Affairs. So we have a lot of diplomats in kind of hostile and remote enough uh, areas in, in Africa, for instance, and in Asia. And the Wing and our diplomatic corps have been working um, very, very well together over the last decade as well, and we'll see how that plays out over the next little while. Yeah, it's a difficult life, I'd say, when you're in the middle of it. I mean, very difficult. You can be called away. I understand you can be literally called at quarter of an hour's notice to be at the other end of the country in four hours. Well, officially they're on one hour's notice to move, so you have to live within uh, one hour of the Curra, uh, for sure, but they're on you know, uh, you know, five hours notice to move anywhere in the world and it's required. But as a general rule, it's quite structured and it's quite organised, so you will have an idea of what's planned for you over the next 12 months. But uh, obviously these black swan events happen every so often, as we've learned in the last week, and we must be prepared to respond. And that's specifically why the, the Defence Forces maintain... Uh, this high-level unit had such high readiness that they can intervene when Irish citizens are, are in trouble, uh, either at home or overseas. So at home from a hostage rescue perspective and then overseas from, a, from an evacuation perspective, as we're seeing playing out now. So effectively, there's always a ranger at an hour's notice. Wow. Absolutely, uh, more than more than one. And the unit is about, about 100 people. Obviously, that, that number uh, fluctuates up and down. Um, but it's, it's really, really important that the unit continues to be resourced. The, the big drawback um, uh, from, from this operation, like I, I do welcome the deployment for sure, mm. um, but I, I wish it happened last week uh, rather than today. Uh, it's making the difficult the, the job, a, a difficult job even more challenging for, for the range now to try and pinpoint exactly where our 36 uh, civilians are out there. The reason it didn't happen, there's two reasons primarily, but the main one is that the, we, we lack a strategic airlift in this country. We're only one of I heard you make that point on national radio earlier on, and I wanted to ask you, and I knew you, you were coming on, You're, only ourselves and Malta have this problem in, in the EU. Explain what it is. Yeah, we, we don't have any independent uh, aircraft that can fly our people off the island, and that is a, a very sad indictment on how the Defence Force have been resourced, particularly over the last decade. Um, it's not the way to do business. But do we not have an Air Corps fleet? 
Uh, we do, but it's very, very small and it's not specific for, for, for moving cargo. So we do have two CASA aircraft, um, but they are maritime patrols. So, so they are focused specifically uh, and, and on the securing are the, the maritime approaches uh, to the island. Right. And they have very sophisticated avionics and surveillance on board. So it, it wouldn't be appropriate to move troops or, or vehicles overseas. Oh, so those big, huge jets that we've seen taken off from Kabul with the huge big belly on them and a few hundred people rammed into them, we don't have any of that. Uh, we don't even have anything close to it. And that's not actually what I'm proposing. I'd be just proposing uh, something that can move about 70 troops, which would be something like uh, an Airbus 295. And you can pick them up nearly new for about 20 million. But the problem is, uh, I'm not actually looking for more money to be spent on strategic lift for Ireland. I'm actually looking for less. Like we're paying through the nose, and the taxpayer with public funds is paying through the nose for, for chartering aircraft at very, very short notice on an ad hoc basis. And it's costing millions of euro every year. It'd be far better if we purchase their own aircraft, leave it in Badan. It's available then across government basically for deployments when it's required. Right, and of course the, the, we, we have the pilots as it were in the Air Corps and just just let it there and when it's needed, it's needed and powered up and ready to, ready to fly in in an hour. Is that is that it? Absolutely. So we have the talent. We just need the tools. And it's very easily done. We've been screening for it for decades. And I think it's, it's, it's high time now that we, we provide our own independent uh, autonomous assets from that perspective. We shouldn't be relying on other countries. It's okay to interact with them and partner with them as required, but we shouldn't be absolutely reliant. If it wasn't for the French, for instance, we would not be able to get our, our troops. And we do have the finest troops in the world, but there's no point in having them if you can't deploy them, if, if there's no reach, if you can't project them uh, across the globe. Let's get back to, to the actual admission then in the next few days and I appreciate so much of it is, is classified and sir, you're, you're, ex, you're ex-army now but put yourself on, on the ground if you were one of those nine people, uh, Cahill what would you, what would be your first brief, what, what do you think you'd be expected to do when you put your boots on the tarmac in Kabul, what would you be expected to do? Well, the liaison is the number one function. So you'd be liaising with two people, two groups of people, I should say, the 36 army civilians that are outside the airport perimeter and also your multinational colleagues. So it's very unusual now for Irish troops or indeed any troops really to be deployed uh, just purely from a national perspective. Nearly all military operations are multinational. So you'd probably divide your team half with, with focus on, on trying to pinpoint exactly where the the Irish civilians are outside the airport perimeter and the other half would focus on interacting with most likely the UK and the US Special Forces. And the reason being is from a multinational perspective, language really is the common denominator. Yeah. So you would gravitate towards uh, people who speak the same language basically. Right, so you'd be on the ground there, you'd know who all the 36 people are that you need to get out, but while remaining in the airport then, you work with other forces from around the world to get, say, Johnny Murphy from the other side of Kabul or from Kandahar to get them to the airport and get them on a plane. Yeah, that's, that's precisely it. So, I mean, there's two options. You can provide access, a number of gates into the airport parameter. You can provide access to the airport for, for Irish citizens, or you can arrange for a remote pickup as well. And I suppose it's, it's very important to point out as well, this is a, a joint uh, multidisciplinary team uh, where you have the Department of Foreign Affairs, diplomats, and the military working uh, very, very closely together. And what's great is over the last 10 years, uh, in Africa in particular, the Range Wing and our diplomatic corps have been working extensively together. And I think it's uh, going to bear fruit over the next 72, 96 hours. Now, the Taliban have put a deadline of August 31st, which is only what? It's only next Monday or Tuesday uh, to get people out of there. So this is, this is an urgent 
job of work. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I wish we were deployed last week, but uh, we are where we are. So basically, that's the Taliban's stated position, and we've no idea of what's going on um, via the informal networks between the, the US and the Taliban. So the stated position at the moment is midnight on the 31st of August, uh, which gives us a week of a window, basically, to get our, get our people home. But who knows how things are going to play out? And that's a key point to emphasise. This is a blank canvas, really. We still don't know for sure whether our troops will get to Kabul. We don't know whether their mission will be successful and we don't know how they're going to get home precisely yet but that's why you deploy your, your, your best troops because not only is their, their skill set excellent and very well developed but they have a wonderful mindset as well they they, they have the right temperament and they have the right composure mm. and to, to operate in such an uncertain environment and that's that's really important because despite all their their fantastic skills and um, they, they carry themselves with such humility as well and that's mm-hmm. a really really important component of a, of a special forces trooper If the worst were to come to the worst Cahill, and things got nasty before everybody was out. I assume, again, these nine people have the training and the expertise to just change tack. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a fully uh, comprehensive uh, contingency plan in, in place from that perspective. The, the, the most vulnerable or the most dangerous phase of this drawdown really is, is really in the last 24 hours. And that's when you'll see the, the, the size of the aircraft being deployed, uh, being reduced large aircraft at the moment, they're going to get smaller and smaller and probably move from fixed wing to, to rotary wing over time, basically. But the final drawdown, the final collapsing of the airport perimeter, that's the most dangerous phase, basically, and that's one I'll be watching for uh, over the next week. Yeah, so I look, we all appreciate they're not going in a combat role. This is a liaison and logistics role. But if it got nasty, they would be able to, to cope Absolutely, they have both the tools and the talent to look after themselves and to protect civilians and to look after their colleagues as well. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. That this is a, a military operation. It's called a NEO. It's a non-combatant evacuation operation is the right. actual uh, term for it. But our, our troops are well able to look after themselves and the people that they've been mandated to protect. Do they do they have air cover? Like, with, I mean, while they're there. So basically, the the Irish team will be plugged into the, the multinational framework, and there's three key enablers that that brings. Uh, first of all, air support. Uh, secondly, medical support, and third of all, then intelligence. So they will have access to all those three key enablers, basically. And I can guarantee you, there's there's plenty of air support available that's stacked up above um, uh, Kabul at the moment. Both from a road wing perspective, you'll have um, helicopter gunships available, and also higher up, then you'll have the fast air. Of, of the Western Air Forces available as well. That needs, if they need to be called in, they can be uh, they can be made available. So, so it's 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 all there and all lined up. Did did you say, Carl? This is coming in on the phone, so maybe maybe the person didn't hear. Did you say that that our Rangers find did train with British Special Forces? Is, does does that happen? Well, they train with every Special Forces all across the. The, the Western Western world, really. Um, and it's really, really important that that cross-training and that interoperability training takes place precisely for, for days like this. Could, could that be problematic, depending on who might be in government in the future, if, if there was a change of government? 
Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I think most people realise that the bad guys are talking, uh, so, so the good guys need to talk as well. And it's very important that the, the very small special forces community globally are allowed to train and interact with each other. Like, I mean, as I said, they're on first name terms with a lot of the operators. And if you go back to, to Chad, even in 2008, when uh, a lot of European special forces deployed together to help their foreign refugees, I mean, most of them had worked you know, seamlessly together, either in Sweden or, mm. or in Belgium or in Austria uh, before, you know, and that's, that allows for a very cohesive unit when, when people hit, hit the ground. Okay, listen, Deputy Berry, thank you very much for being with us. And for you and your former colleagues, uh, thank you for your service. Uh, Cahal Berry, TD, former Irish Ranger. A bit of an insight into what is going to happen uh, with the best of the best our best of our best going to Kabul over the next uh, few days. Uh, Shona says, excellent to send these guys in because the deadline is 31st of August. Well, as he said, it should have been last week, but at least they're on the way now. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie the lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. If you've noticed low-flying aircraft over the city... In the last day or two, I noticed one last night. Queen Bee was out the back, and she called me out. Mountain, look at this! Mountain, look at this! And like, you were so low, you could nearly. Talk. I'm exaggerating, but you know, it was very, very low aircraft. Now this was at dusk, so I'm not sure if it was just uh, low aircraft or Old English from the Examiner has just tweeted that there's geo- geological mapping going on. It's a Telus survey. And they are flying around County Cork this week. It's geological mapping. So don't be bothered by it if there's a particularly low-flying aircraft flying slowly overhead. They're basically mapping the geography of Cork City and County. Thanks for that, Bowen. I'm wondering if that's the one I saw last night. Herself was out the back. They called me out. Come here, look at that, look at that. And it was very low-flying. It actually looked a bit like Wayne's little plane, but a bit bigger than it and much lower down in the sky. So that's where they're at. They're doing a geological survey, if you've seen any of those planes going around. 1850-715-996. Come here. Someone tweeted this morning. I mean, I'm the world's worst child when it comes to looking forward to Christmas. Um, you know that from listening to me over the years. But someone just tweeted that four months today on the date is Christmas Eve four months today of the 24th of December <laughs> yes ah oh, stop 1850-715-996 but this day next week and the next week or so is all back to school and one man who's been doing Trojan work over the last couple of weeks to help those less well off kids out there to get back to school with books and biros and rulers and calculators and copies and shoes and t-shirts and socks and tops and everything is uh, Joseph Bourne. Joe, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ, you've my friend. How are you? A huge response you've had. Unbelievable, PJ. I'm actually 
shocked because normally, you know, we do the Easter eggs and selection boxes, but the response for the school things has been amazing. Down on myself, I've literally gone in, I'd say, with five full Jeep load stuff, full, and about another to go by the end of the week. Literally, unbelievable socks, as you say, T-shirts, sportswear, tracksuit bottoms, all stations, every kind of thing you could think of. School bags, boys and girls, lunch boxes, bottles of water. Oh my God, we did a response. It's just constantly coming into the salon. Where, where, where did the idea come from to do it, Joe? Um, just somebody got on to me to know um, would I be able to help out with um, their school things, you know what I mean? Would I be able to, to do anything for them? And that's from then on the idea stemmed. I said there must be a lot more out there in the same situation. Mm. And I had a chat down with the Dell House, and they're just unbelievably delighted with what's coming in, and it takes a huge amount of pressure off them. And then I would have individuals that would phone me themselves, PJ, and say, "Look, join any chance you can help me out or whatever." You know, as a coach, last time I had a lady rang me from hospital up in Dublin. She was coming back to Cork, but she had nothing set up for the kids. Mm. Yeah. Unbelievable! And a few people got on to me now saying it's been like Christmas for them when they got home with their stationary box and a bit of everything in it for going back to school that they were delighted. Yeah, because we've been talking here in the programme about, you know, just even even for families that that have jobs and even for families that, that would get by reasonably well for the rest of the year, back to school's an awfully expensive time. Awfully, I didn't actually realise, you know, what they actually needed until I started, people started dropping in stuff, because when I went to school, it seems to be very different, you know what I mean? Mm. And, of course, then you're you're under pressure, too, to have everything new, I suppose, and nice stuff, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge, there's a huge amount of people out there, as you say, paying their markets, paying their bills, but finding this time they're tough, and a few people have contacted me, as I say, and any chance I could help them out, and these people would have been actually donating a few years ago themselves to me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so, so have you given everything to Adele House, so? No, I've given most of it, but as I say, I have individuals then ring me up, and then while I've got PJs, people are giving me money, and the minute I get money, I spend it straight away on vouchers for done stores to get um, school uniforms. So I give that to parents as well then, and I give it to their house, and a few others who can spread them around then, and you know, they can go out there and buy the uniforms or whatever they need. Yeah, yeah there's, um, there's a little parcel in, in, in Coogan Terrace for you as well, so so we'll drop it over the next couple oh, of days. Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing the Queen Bee anyway. I hope she comes personally because I can check out her hair and everything. <laughs> but DJ, I really must say to your listeners, thank you very much and to all my customers. People are amazing and they have huge, huge trust that you just drop stuff into me. It goes to the person and I can assure you, anything we get goes to the white people, which I can't emphasize that enough, you know. Mm. Joe, I've asked you this before, my friend. What drives you to do this? I suppose, PJ, I have the the, um, the audience in the salon. That's how it all starts when people just start. So I said, this is easy. I'm only the kind of the front man. Like, Darren does all the driving. The girls take stuff in. People do You know, once you say to them, to a customer at all, they're, they're flying with stuff. And I think myself, PJ, when I went to school, when we were kids, I was young as seven, we didn't have it. You know what I mean? We didn't have these things. We didn't have the selection boxes. We probably had one or something. But like, I think that's it. I remember going to school with very, very little and being embarrassed, you know. Maybe mm. the hand-me-downs. I'm sure I went to hand-me-down one time with a pair of tights on me. Yeah. Literally, I remember having to pull this trousers thing down. There was no zip or buttons on it to go for we. I'm yeah. sure my mother gave me one of my sister's things from 20 years previous. Crikey. Yeah. 
And you know, that's, people that, that's actually funny now, not being serious, but that did happen. Yeah, I mean, no, no, it is funny. Really, but I, as a little boy, these things happen and they stay with you. And you oh, they do, yeah. yeah. I had a suitcase wrapped around by a belt or something and like literally, it was a trunk of a horrible thing, but my few books in it. Yeah. You know, but people would be slagging you and catching the suitcase and throwing it around the yard and you'd be running out, you know, things like that. So things like that do stay in your mind. And if I can at all, and I will help anybody out there, it's it's, it's a fantastic feeling. Okay. Are you closing the appeal or are you keeping it open for a I'm going while? to keep going till Friday because I have still a lot of stuff coming in. But we opened the salon one day, obviously, quietly and did a few kids. You would not believe it. PJ, just the feeling. Little kids, they come in and the mothers are a little bit nervous, you know, and I always emphasize this isn't a charity, this is nothing, this is by the grace of God, I could be in the same position next year, you know what I mean? Right. But except for going to school out and going to school. <laughs> so but you look PJ, after but they know. come in, by the time they leave, they're on a high. You know, they get the hair done, they offer their little gifts as well, because we'd always keep something back like crane books or pencils or something like that. They're sitting in the chair, getting the hair done, I'm swiveling the chair, having the crack, acting to eat it. And the grouse feeling tough form. Yeah. Uh, and it means a lot. And you know, PJ, you come away out of yourself and get in the cast. Oh my God, that, that was a fantastic feeling, no? And we're so, 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 so lucky. All right. All right. Listen, Joe, as always, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear what you do and the response that you get is just phenomenal. And he's open until Friday taking these donations to do with back to school. That's uh, Joseph's Hair Salon in Glasheen, Joe Bourne. If you have books or pencils or copies or rulers or mathematical sets or poly pockets and other thing that or, or socks or shorts or pants or shoes or anything at all that you think a kid going back to school might make use of. Lunch boxes, sacks, you name it. Drop them out to Joseph's Hair Salon. Uh, just opposite, if you've, if you've never been there, just opposite Flannery's out there at the end of Glasheen Road. Straight opposite. Uh, and he will make sure that it goes to a needy family. 1850-715-996. Is it any wonder? And I, I, there is a list, and I'll be involved in the event, so coming closer to time, we'll probably talk about it more. But the Pride of Cork Awards are coming up at the end of November. All going well. And Joe has been nominated for a Pride of Cork Award, and deservedly, deservedly so. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Going to help you through the afternoon with all your favourite tunes from the biggest artists, all the latest TV and movie news and everything happening. Leeside, I got it for you straight after the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Someone was... Asking, do we know, or why hasn't it been mentioned, or has it been mentioned at all? There were touts, ticket touts, buying and selling around Croke Park on Sunday last. Buying or selling a ticket? It's kind of as much a part of Croke Park as the referee's whistle, do you know? Buying or selling a ticket? But it's not supposed to be happening at these times. But it was happening, I can up on Jones's Road now, and up in the walk up there by the Hill 16 pub. Buying or selling a ticket? Do you know? Uh, yesterday, Jer, oh yeah, I've seen one of these, and it's amazing, you know, we make such a big deal, and rightly so, of getting one of these in Cork, but if you go to certain parts of Spain, there's one on every beach, sometimes there's two or three 
on every beach. Ger was on, Gerardy, to say his daughter Lily got to enjoy the tide coming in yesterday at Gary Vaux Beach thanks to the recently acquired Hippocamp chair that allows children with special needs to cross a beach. These are a wonderful thing. If you ever, they're like a wheelchair, but they have puffy up wheels that allows them to go on the sand and into the water. They're brilliant things. Jared says normally a very stony, rough terrain beach like that would have been impossible for Lily. But yesterday her smile said a thousand words. Yep. Yeah, and they're all the fact that we are up at arms celebrating about them in 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 Cork. It says, unfortunately, a lot about us that we see them as a big surprise. Go to parts of Spain, and you'll find these everywhere. They're just there. They're just provided because you know some kid might want them. But thanks for that, Jer. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Now. Looking at the paper today, you'll see on, say, the front page of the examiner that and Daniel McConnell and Paul Hosford writing that a relaxation of the one of the two metre social distancing rule for vaccinated workers to allow a viable return to the office is part of the government's reopening plan to be discussed later in the week. And priority has been given to school children and priority has been given to get people back into work and back into the office. Uh, but are we able for it? Are we ready for it? And how has the pandemic affected mental health and stress in the workplace? We've talked about this many, many times. And there's a couple of of new terms have come into use. One of them being presenteeism, whatever that is, and pleasanteeism. I need to find out more. Caroline Reedy is from the HR Suite. Caroline, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Lots of uh, interesting new concepts there coming about, isn't there? Indeed, indeed. And what, I mean, we talked before about how hard it can be, uh, the pressure of the pandemic. Even if you kept your job, uh, it still was very pressurised, having to work from home, maybe never have done it before, maybe keeping up to date with deadlines. That was tough for people. What, on the name of goodness, is presenteeism? So basically, I suppose that's been something that has been around a long time before COVID and it's probably something that's becoming um, more prevalent now as a result of it. But presenteeism is you're present in body, but not necessarily present in mentally and, you know, present fully in the sense of being focused. And for a lot of people, there's a lot of different challenges around that. For some, it's worry. For others, it's mental health. And for others, it's the fact that they're juggling so many things that they're not actually able to focus on any one thing at any one stage, you know, in uh, you know, in one time. And that's a really big issue where you have people who are worried about, you know, people back to school, back into the office. Um, and it's really important that we have as much clarity as we can. So it's great that the government are getting the guidelines finalised soon because we've been really waiting for this and we'd love to have them at this stage so that everybody can start working towards them. Because I think in the absence of having clarity, you know, people naturally are that bit more worried. It's such a common theme across every sector now, isn't it, Caroline, that what we need so much, be it in work, be it in sport, be it in music, be it in entertainment, be it in anything, schools in particular clarity is what we need and it's in short supply 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're doing our best. We've been lucky along the way that the government return to work protocols have been very good and they have given a lot of clarity in relation to what we needed to do. And in fairness, in something that was so unforeseen, you know, we did get some really good guidance around, you know, what people need in the workplace and, you know, the the different payments that were available, etc. And were made available quite quickly. The big challenge now is as we talk about the new return and for many they've never been out of the work environment so it's not going to influence them but for those that are working in offices and you know that return back into the office just there's so many factors to it managing their work-life balance managing you know childcare and other things that they have managed up to now in a different way because they were more available and now also the worry of making sure, look, is my workplace safe? We obviously can't ask people, have they been vaccinated? We, at the moment, know, at, you know, the current guidelines are two metre social distancing. We've heard in the most up-to-date, um, you know, media updates that the government are looking at one metre social distancing now. But we need to know so that people can start making plans to make them happen. But the number one priority now is the numbers are still rising, being sensible about a blended or hybrid approach so that, you know, we have a good balance um, of helping people transition and they're getting a bit of lead time to Mm. make that transition as well. There's a concern as well too, and I think the word pleasantism has been coined uh, to cover it, that people are saying that they're doing fine and they're putting in their tasks and they're finishing their, their job and they're filing the report and they're doing all that and keeping a smile on their face. But we don't know what's going on inside. Absolutely. And I suppose it's never been more important, not just in the work context, but family, friends, etc. you know, where we're doing the check-ins to see, you know, how people are. And as they always say, it's the person that is saying everything's grand, but you never see them or they're not engaging is the person that you you need to make that bit more effort with because there's definitely a lot of people and they're struggling with the amount that's going on, whether that's the juggling, whether that's the concern about return, you know, all those other things. So as managers in the work environment, the importance of doing proper check-ins with people is crucial. And also then in, you know, in our lives in general, that we're making that effort because, you know, we've all got really busy being busy but it's really important we're busy doing the right things too. Yeah. You you mentioned there, and I made a note of it to come back to you, the idea that your boss can't actually ask you your vaccination status. Now, to me, that's stressful on two levels. One, it's stressful for your boss in that they're trying to plan. And secondly, it's stressful for your colleague who is nervous and doesn't know and has no right to know whether you're vaccinated or not. Absolutely. And I suppose, again, now this is definitely going to be part of this guideline that's coming from the government because the government have have remained silent on it. But the Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, has issued a guidance document to say that we can't ask people, you know, whether they've been vaccinated or not, unless it's in line with public health interest. And, for example, if you are a HC worker, obviously, um, mm. that, that meets that criteria. But I suppose the other side See, of it is... Just, I cut across you, sorry. Isn't there a public health interest? That's an interesting one there now from, from Helen Dixon. You can't ask someone's vaccination status unless there's a public health interest, okay? So pause, pause the tape, as it were. So 
you've got an office where you normally have, we say, 40 employees over eight or nine rooms. And for the last couple of months, you've had a skeleton staff inside and everybody else working from home. You pick a Monday when everyone is coming back. Surely if someone is unvaccinated and possibly a carrier of COVID into the... There is a public health interest there. Yeah, and I suppose that's really the big debate. And also, I suppose, even if people are vaccinated, they still obviously can be carrying the virus. So it's making sure people are very aware of any symptoms that they may have. That's the number one priority. I suppose the other thing as well, though, is people's social distancing, people's hand hygiene, people's respiratory hygiene, and self-awareness of, look, maybe have I lost my sense of smell or, you know, my sense of taste, and could this be, you know, an indicator? I think we don't want to um, put all the eggs in the vaccination box either, Mm -hmm. that we want to make sure that people don't lose that sense of awareness in relation to it. But look, it's it's fantastic that we're in a country that such a high percentage of people have availed of the vaccine. Mm. And I think that that will give people a lot of confidence. But also that return needs to be gradual. Yeah. It needs to be planned and people just need to get as much notice as possible. But it's very difficult for employers to do that when they don't know yet. Is it one metre? Is it two? Mm-hmm. You know, and so the sooner we get that clarity, I think the sooner everybody can get that little bit of reassurance that they need. And at the end of the day, health and safety trumps everything. Both employers and employees have that overwriting obligation to make sure that they're all doing their best. Mm. And I think if we keep doing that, we will, you know, we've the best chance of ensuring we keep as many people safe as we can. Is every sector the same at this stage? Every everyone's asking for a date. So, like as a as a HR professional yourself, probably dealing with loads of different companies and, and company structures, how important is it that the government comes up on Friday or Monday or Tuesday and says, "Okay, from the first of, let's just say December, from the first of December, people can start moving back into the workplace who've been working from home." How important is a date? I think we're going to get a date much sooner than that in reality. I think also that um, once it's managed in a blended way, for a lot of people working from home doesn't suit them. They haven't the right work set up. You know, that was fine when it was an emergency, you know, when we all thought it was going to be much more short term. But for a lot of people, they miss the socialisation of work. They miss the fact, you know, of having separation between work and home. Um, So this isn't like, you know, a case that everybody wants the choice of working at home. I think where we're going to land is a balance of three days, two days, because we're not going to attract and retain really good people if we say, well, sorry, everybody's back now and that's it. People Mm. are just going to look for alternative jobs that will give them that balance. Where people's mental health is a bit fragile, could, could doing it too suddenly be a problem for them? I think that no employer um, would, you know, underestimate the need for this to be done in a a consultative, a collaborative and in a timeline fashion. And, you know, I think it's important as well that, you know, we don't know what we don't know, the importance of an employee flagging any concerns that they have, but equally trying to achieve equity for all because, you know, like you want to try and treat everybody as fairly as you can in this process. Mm. But I think the only way of doing that is by listening to each individual scenario 
and each individual scenario will be different and needs that different treatment in this case. Um, but hopefully we will see a lot more clarity because, as you said, for most industries now they're back, you know. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Most people, you know, the pop now is reduced dramatically, but we all are still so looking forward to having live music and you know all those type of industries that have really suffered greatly and for them it's not just a job it's a passion it's a lifestyle you know so and for us it's part of what we want to be able to enjoy in terms of the experience as well socializing in in you know in our places and um, in our communities so hopefully the next few days will give clarity for sectors clarity for remote uh, workers, clarity for returning to the office and just overall clarity so people can start planning because I think that's the crucial thing now, isn't it, that people just want that clarity. Yeah, okay. All right. Thank you very much. Caroline Reedy uh, from the HR Suite. Everyone is hoping that we'll get dates for this and dates for that on Friday. But I think the important message for Caroline is it's got to be gradual and it's got to take into account many, many things, including the fact that some people will be extremely nervous. And I'm sorry, and you can call me unfair here, but I do not like this idea. Do not like this idea that your boss is not entitled to know your vaccine status. I'm very uncomfortable with that idea. If I was a manager... Uh, managing a team of 5, 10, 15, 20, how many people? If I was a manager heading up a team or a chief executive heading up a company, I would be very uncomfortable with the idea that I don't know somebody's vaccination status because I don't know what are they bringing into my workplace, what are they bringing into my factory, what are they bringing into my shop, my office. I don't know. And I would be nervous about that. Tom says companies have saved a fortune on rent and power and all that due to working from home. Shouldn't there be some bonus for them? And Nick, uh, I like this actually, Nick, this is good. Uh, Anxiety about returning to the office. I'm fine, I'm fine, says Nick. I'm frightened, insecure, neurotic and emotional. Just on Afghanistan, John 
from Mallow says, like it or not, this is an invasion. Our troops are operating in another country's sovereign area. Furthermore, they're strongly associated with Western forces that occupied the country. This can go badly wrong and we can bring all of the troubles of the Middle East down on top of us. The Irish government should use diplomacy and commercial channels only, says John. Well, you see, when we have extremely highly trained special forces uh, soldiers to send in on a logistic level, John, we should, shouldn't we? 185715996. John says, Hi PJ, can anyone answer as to why you need your COVID cert to prove your vaccine status to enter a restaurant with your family or with your close friends for an hour or two or to go on a flight, but you don't have to produce the cert to go into your office or place of work for 8 to 12 hours a day with total uncertainty. What is the difference? It's a very good point. I need to show my, and I have no problem, by the way, I need to show my vaccine status at the moment if I want to go for a pint indoors. And I have no problem with that. And if you have a problem with me having no problem, tough. But I don't have, my boss has no right to know whether I'm vaccinated or not, which is just daft. That's absolutely just completely daft. Tim Brosnan asks, how do you think Jacinta Ardern would have run our shop over the past two months? I wonder, is he, if we're damned by leadership, which is more concerned with being on side with vested interests than with confident decision-making? In hurling terms, she'd be in Limerick's class, whereas leadership from political parties wouldn't even be in Cork's class. The other our political parties wouldn't be. Jacinda Ardern's having a tough time of it in New Zealand at the moment because they've got an outbreak and it's Delta and it's taken off a little bit. Uh, they'll get it under control, have no doubt. If any country in the world can get it back under control, it'll be New Zealand. And if you remember last week, I read a thread from Niall Conroy, our friend Niall Conroy in Queensland, how they got an outbreak under control. If anybody can get an outbreak under control in New Zealand, it'll be Jacinda Ardern and her team. But it's a tough time for them at the moment. But uh, people were given out last week, oh, PJ, you must realise now that zero COVID is not doable. Look at New Zealand and look at Australia. BS, horse manure. It is doable. They've done it and they'll do it again. All of them. 185715996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. Levis has welcome back Paul Tiernan and Darren McCarthy, accompanied by Morris Caesar on piano to perform live at Levis's Outback. There's outdoor seating but very limited tickets taking place on Monday 30th of August. Access all areas. It Takes a Village has announced it will return to Trabalgan Holiday Village on Friday the 18th to Sunday the 20th of September. The lineup includes the Blind Boy podcast, Fish Go Deep and John Francis Flynn with tickets available from the festival's website ittakesavillage.fm Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96 Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Earlier we spoke to uh, Cahill Berry. He's a TD now, but he's a former Irish Ranger. And he talked about the Rangers' mission uh, to uh, Cabal 
to help try and get some Irish citizens and their partners out, their dependents out of Afghanistan over the next few days. An interesting insight with uh, Kyle into the work of the Rangers and the training of the Rangers. And they are the best of our best. Phil Nannery also served his country, a US uh, military veteran based in Cork these days. And Phil, you're particularly worried about a friend of yours who's in Afghanistan uh, and you, you're anxious to get him out too. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Yes, that's true. Thank you very much. Um, that That is correct. I, uh, I served in Afghanistan from 2011 to 2012 in the US Army. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, one of our one of our interpreters there is uh, you know I'm I'm just using his nickname. Obviously, I'm concerned about him using his real name for security reasons at the moment. Um, but his nickname was Rocky. We all called him Rocky, and he was a very good friend. He became a very good friend over the time I had in Afghanistan. Um, and he we've been in touch for the last few years on Facebook. Um, you know, uh, and and he's he's really concerned at the moment for his safety because interpreters. Uh, are seen as traitors by the by the Taliban, are they not? And he would find himself in danger. Absolutely, yeah. The um, anyone really who who would have helped us or helped, I wouldn't even just say us, but helped their country. You know, they were helping the republic, the the democratically elected republic of Afghanistan. So anybody, if it was police, um, you know, just anybody doing their job, anybody working in any capacity for you know the democratically uh, elected. Uh, government at the time is is now yeah uh, they're they're viewing them as targets. Mm. Tell me how you met him and how closely you worked with him. Yeah, so well, he was one of several interpreters on our base. Um, we had a few we had a, a few weeks where we didn't have an interpreter, so he would have been from another unit, uh, would have covered down on us. But in addition, we all lived in very close proximity. Um, so even if he was going out on a, on a mission with a different unit one day or we came back, we would have watched movies together and gone to the gym together, you know, all the sort of things we did to keep ourselves occupied and stuff on our downtime. Yeah. He has family? He does, yeah. He's a father of three, uh, as, as well as his wife. Mm. So when was the last time you were able to get in touch with him? Have you spoken to him lately? I, I was, te- you know, I'd say I was texting him this morning. Um, we've been texting, uh, well, on on you know, Facebook Messenger, whatever. We, we, we've been we've been texting back and forth uh, every day for the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to get him out and to get him refugee status somewhere, anywhere. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, he he actually first got onto me. I you know the 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 sad thing about this is that you know this isn't really. It's not like we, we're we're kind of scrambling at the eleventh hour, um, and it's like, oh my goodness, what will we do now? And just to give you an example, PJ, I mean, I I first, and it's heartbreaking to say, I first wrote him a, a sworn statement to the U.S. government back in like the fall of 2018, and said, hey, you know, this guy worked for us. He he really put his life on the line. He really shared a lot of our hardships, um, and he's saying that he's a bit, you know, well, he wasn't a bit. I mean, he was facing death threats in 2018. Um, when, when the, you know, when the Afghan government was still in control, um, even then he was telling me, Hey, Phil, listen, um, can you do me a favor? Can you write me a letter? I'm trying to get to the States, trying to get out of here. And that was before the Taliban had control of Mm. most of, you know, almost all of Afghanistan. Because uh, I I think that the resurgence of the, of the Taliban, while, while it might have taken us all for, for surprise a week or two ago, 
people who were really watching saw it coming. And as far back, like you said, as 2018, he felt he wasn't safe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, there, there's, I'll tell you, the, the last two weeks have been a, a lot of emotions for me and uh, as a veteran of Afghanistan. But there's two, two which I can honestly say I haven't experienced. One is surprise and the other is regret. I would go back and do it again if I could. Um, and my interpreter, Rocky, has told me he would do the same. Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm not surprised either. Mm-hmm. And it, it's uh, it's heartbreaking. It's unfortunate. But it's one of those things that, you know, and, and I'm, I'm telling all my friends and telling everyone this, for me, is completely apolitical. I don't care about anyone's politics. I don't think it should be a, a left issue, right issue. For me, this is about helping a friend. Yeah. And, and nothing more. You were, you, were, you were there as a soldier, and I, I know that the details of what you did and the work you did are classified for military reasons and I wouldn't ask you to break that classification but talk to me a little bit about Afghanistan as you know it what kind of a place is it Phil what kind of people are they you know I met some of the most amazing and wonderful people when I was in Afghanistan um it it was it's a country that has known conflict longer than I've been alive um, they've been basically in a state of conflict since 1979 when the Soviet Union invaded. And I tell you, you know, I, I, I'll tell you a story that I, I, you know, always get emotional about. But there was uh, an issue with shipping bricks in to build a school in the district. I was in a very, very remote rural district, um, very, very near the edge of, of the government's influence and then went very close to where the Taliban's influence began. And there was a shipment of getting bricks in to build a school and they couldn't, they, they couldn't get the shipment. There was all this bureaucratic mess and red tape. And one local Afghan had said, Hey, you know what? I used to live in uh, the U S years ago and I, I moved back here after the Taliban collapsed. And uh, you know, I used to work in a college in America. You know what? Give me some of those spare parachutes you have, that you collect, you know, all our, we were so remote, all our supplies would be parachuted to us by airplane. He said, give me one of those parachutes, string it up between these trees. We'll get a bit of shade. You know what? Give me, give me some chalk, give me some notepads, and I'll just start teaching the kids in the village how to read and write. Crikey. No, I mean, that's the, that's the motivation and the drive that these people had to, in a, in a province, in my district, over 90% illiteracy. Mm. The infant mortality rate was very high. We were our, our our platoon's medic was the uh, and and as well there was another medic in in another unit. Two medics on our base were the only modern, you know, medical expertise in our district. Wow. And out of all that, you had people who were going to say, "Hey, I'll risk my life to try helping the government, to try helping the Americans. I'll risk my life." Yeah. And this teacher, this teacher as well, had death threats on him. But he every day he woke up, walked in to his little makeshift tent, and taught kids how to read and write with a pen and paper. Wow, that's incredible! That's incredible. You were a very young man when you were there, Phil. You're only what thirty four or five now. You were a very young. young man. Yeah, I was twenty twenty four. I was twenty one in Iraq and then twenty four in Afghanistan. Wow, makes a huge impression on you. Does it shape you for life? What you see in a place like that? Absolutely. I think you know it's something that it, it gives you a greater appreciation for things. You know, I um, I think. Almost to my detriment, maybe I, I could have a really bad day and, and something, whatever. And I, I, I kind of, I tend to think you it can always get worse. And I think that's why. Look, and again, come back to my friend Rocky. Yeah, it's like 
you know, I'm suddenly, you know, this, and then actually I just want to give a shout out. It's a trending thing on Twitter. It's hashtag digital Dunkirk. Okay. This is, I am one of thousands of veterans right now who are, who are using Facebook, Google maps, freaking you name it. And we're trying to get these guys home. And I'm reminding myself, and this is just like being in Afghanistan. If, if for whatever reason, maybe I sat back in the command center one night and I was, you know, observing everything, communicating with people and saying, right, they're out in the hostile area, communicate with them, get them back. I'm doing the same thing now. I'd like to be there with him, getting him to safely to the airport. But this is just one of those nights where, for whatever reason, I happen to be in the command center and I'm, instead I'm using my phone and everything I can to try to help him out. No, you really, really want to help your friend. As you know, you're... You, you live in Cork now, so you're an adopted Corkman. I do, I'll here in the, the real uh, capital I'll of get Ireland. To, <laughs> I'll get to that in a sec, by the way. But look, our the Minister for Foreign Affairs is a Corkman, as you know. And I know Simon Coveney has, has said that there will be uh, several hundred, I think 200 at the moment is the number of people allowed to come in from Afghanistan uh, on, on visas in. How much would it mean to you for Minister Colvney to, to help your friend today? It would mean the world to me. It really would. And, you know, I, he, the thing is, it, 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 all I would say is, and again, I don't want to talk about any of the politics or any, you know, yeah. uh, issues or anything like that. All I want to say is, if you're going to let in people, a certain number of people anyway, why not prioritize the most vulnerable? And why not put, you know, just maybe put it at the top of the list that you'll include a certain number of interpreters while you're at it. You know, there's so many people. And like I said, teachers, uh, humanitarians, um, you know, women educators, women who've, who've worked in uh, in government there. But in, in addition to all of those vulnerable groups, I think interpreters should definitely be included as well. Okay. Now, you're a Virginian originally, but your people are from Roscommon. So how do you end up in Cork? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting one. Yeah, so I spent a few summers in, um, in, in Roscommon when I was a teenager before I enlisted, and I loved it. I, you know, I grew up, um, my, my family is all very proud of Irish-American and everything. We had, uh, you know, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, um, my parish priest, one of my parish priests is from West Cork. So, you know, I grew up around a lot of Irish people as a kid in Virginia. And, um, you know, I, after I got out of the army, I went teaching, I went to go teach English in Japan. Uh, and then, um, I applied to grad school here in UCC and, uh, ended up meeting my wife shortly after moving here to go to UCC. Okay. Her name is Deirdre, isn't it? Yes. Okay. All right. You got a couple of kids here. Are you just... No, and and look, you know what? I like I said, it's not it's not about me. I don't want to focus on myself. But you know who does have kids? My friend Rocky. He's got three children, and again, that's what kind of brings home. That's what brings us home is the fact that this isn't you know this isn't a young man. When I met Rocky, he was you know he was a hard charger. He was he was just like me, a young man who was you know full of energy and and ready to to, to fight for a good cause and everything. And now he's a man with you know three children. Why do you I know. get the impression, lastly, Phil, why do I get the impression that if you could get your ass on a plane and drag <laughs> your friend out of it, you I'll would? I'll tell you what, if, you know, I, when I heard that the Army Ranger Wing was, was flying over there, uh, my first question was, how can, I, how can I stow away on that plane going to Kabul? I mean, if, if I could go back, I, unfortunately, it is, it is a young man's game. I don't know if the, the, uh, the Army or the Ranger Wing or anything would take me. I'm probably 
probably uh, too old and out of shape at this You're 34, point. 34, lad, go for goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, it's a lot easier to walk up and down a mountain with, with all your gear at 24, though. So I'll bet. I'll bet. Listen. Whoever uh, it is, let's just get him home safe. Let's prioritize these interpreters and, and let's really try to okay. try to bring him bring him to safety. Phil, a pleasure to speak with you. And, you too, and PJ. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us on the Opinion Line of Cork's 96. And that's Phil Nannery, uh, U.S military veteran living in Cork a veteran like he's 34 and he just wants nothing more than to get his friend Rocky and his family an interpreter out of Afghanistan uh, ASAP for their own safety Okay, we had this uh, message come in from Rachel by text and Rachel has a little bit of a dilemma. No idea how you would advise. We're not allowed advice anyway. But Rachel says, could you please put a call out to a doctor to clarify for me if you can get the vaccine while you're on an antibiotic? My doctor and another doctor said no. But then I asked two pharmacists and they said, yes, I'm very confused and very worried about what to do. Most people are on something or other. And what about all those people on compromised immune systems? It's not nice being told different stories. And thanks from Rachel. Officially, all we're able to say, Rachel, is that you should take the advice of your own doctor. And then if you lack confidence in that, then seek a second opinion from a doctor who is aware that you're seeing them for a second opinion or take it from there. Indeed, if there's, look, if there's any medical doctor listening to us that could maybe advise or assist Rachel, we'd be delighted to hear from you, but that's as much as we can do. Has anybody else been in that circumstance? Can you or can you not get vaccinated while you are taking an antibiotic? I genuinely don't know. Uh, With regard to Tom and his friend at the tax office and all that, it's not just the elderly that have problems with online. The government is delivering the vulnerable into the hands of scammers with this online-only policy for so many things. There definitely needs to be a solution to things like motor tax and other government services through post offices. Well, look, that would have been a no-brainer 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's still a no-brainer to do your motor tax through the post office. But it's never been done for some strange reason. 1850-715-996. Now, I, I wouldn't be a, a, a user of, of OnlyFans, and I'm not on OnlyFans, but in all seriousness, OnlyFans is a place where people go to see video content. It's paid video content, some of it is explicit video content, but it's all consensual and everyone's paying and it's all legitimate, it's a legitimate business for many, many people. Until recently, there's a story broke about a week or so ago about OnlyFans. And I have this from The Independent, which says OnlyFans would ban 
sexually explicit images and videos from the 1st of October. They say in order to ensure the long-term sustainability of our platform and continue to host an inclusive community of creators and fans, we must evolve our content guidelines. Now, is that as straightforward as it seems? It seems it's not as straightforward as it seems. Are they banning explicit content or are they not? And if they are, is that actually fair? Because a lot of people go on OnlyFans. They know what they're going on there to do. People know what they're going on there to buy and to pay for. So is it fair that OnlyFans is doing this? Saoirse Mackin is a sex workers' rights activist. Saoirse, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? I know that, you know... It's only a proportion of OnlyFans um, content creators would be sex workers, but, but they will be affected by this. They will, and, and they would be actually uh, probably the vast majority of the the, uh, the creators on OnlyFans. OnlyFans was created in 2016, as, uh, as you said, a content subscription site, so uh, people can sign up to a subscription to their favourite content creators to get exclusive uh, content. Uh, the site was bought out in 2018. Uh, I think I think it was 2018. Over the correction of that, by a, a person who has another uh, similar site in the in the sex industry, and because of that, then it became very popular uh, among the sex work community, and it kind of exploded from there. So, although you would have people on it who aren't in the sex work industry, such as you know chefs or other celebrities or things like that, the vast majority of the two million creators would be in the sex work industry and, and the vast majority of the 130 million users would have been brought in by those mm. uh, creators in the sex work industry. A critical description of it might be, Sasha, it's it's a paid porn site, is it? Um, I mean, look, some people will call it that. Um, the, the thing is that, I mean, there's certain, there is certainly porn on it. Uh, it wasn't specifically set up to be a, a porn site. Um, but not everything on it is is uh, is porn, and uh, uh, you know even all of the uh, sex workers on it. Um, not a, not all of them would be affected by uh, this because not all of them would post sex, sexually explicit content, and a lot of them would post like nudity and, and things like that. Um, but uh, definitely a, a huge portion of them would be uh, would be affected by uh, by this change. Okay. So what exactly, because there was some confusion over the decision, what exactly has OnlyFans said? So what happened basically is that um, a, a few days ago, as you said, it came out into the media that uh, uh, they were going to be banning sexually explicit content in October. Now, the reason they gave, or the reason the media uh, reported on for that was that um, uh, it was because the payment processors and credit card companies um had said that they wouldn't continue to process uh, payments if they con- if OnlyFans continued to host that content. Now, the the problem is uh, one of the main problems is that that was information released to the media and the information wasn't given to their creators immediately. A lot of creators then contacted OnlyFans about that to find out what was actually. Uh, going to change and if that information was true and a lot of them were told and and there's screenshots showing correspondence a lot of them were told that either it was fake news or it was misinformation or it was it was taken out of context or whatever and that if it was true they'd be updated directly now 
uh, a lot of them there for a lot of creators on it, for example, assumed that maybe this was a sick joke for publicity purposes or whatever. Uh, but then it was a, it was over 24 hours later when OnlyFans finally emailed their creators to confirm that the information was true after leaving a go in the media for more than 24 hours and also after telling a lot of them that it wasn't correct information, uh, they finally updated them after 24 hours. Right. So from October the 1st, explicit content will have to stop? Yes, uh, from October the 1st. And then from sometime, I don't know the date, sometime in December, they have to remove any existing content uh, right. before October the 1st, yeah. Uh, and and this is this is um, this is going to be very detrimental to a lot of um, sex workers who use the platform. A few of my friends use it, which is why I'm interested in it because um, you know, like I don't like the idea of my friends losing their jobs, you know, basically, and and that, and that potentially is what uh, what could happen here, you know, um, if they're unable to uh, post um, uh, the content that they've been posting all along, then. You know that that means that uh, that they're basically out of work unless they can build back up on another platform. You know, yeah. you you say that in a thread on Twitter. Uh, uh, sex work is work, and to take OnlyFans away from people is doing them out of work. Yeah, absolutely. So I, for example, have um, a friend who, before COVID. Um, was involved in in-person um, sex work and uh, she moved to OnlyFans because of uh, not being able to work with COVID. Um, she wasn't then, she was never planning to go back to in-person sex work because she managed to do quite well on OnlyFans and um, she was planning on keeping that as, uh, as her main job. Uh, but unfortunately, this move could potentially push her and uh, others who had never done it before into uh, unsafe in-person uh, sex work, which is a which is a real problem. You know, I mean, mm. there's absolutely nothing wrong with um, with doing that work, of course. But the thing is that it's not safe at the moment because yeah. of the laws that we have. Yeah, yeah, and and you would say, and some people, Sirsha, might struggle with this concept. But let's put it out there anyway: that your friend that you mentioned for your friend to lose this work means as much to them as for someone working in a shop to lose or a pub to lose their job yeah absolutely and do you see it at the same as the same as a job as a job kind of thing yeah yeah this is um you know this is uh, a, a job and the thing is that there's you know the two million creators a huge portion of those would be uh sex workers you know i mean if uh if a big company, a factory or whatever closed down in Ireland and hundreds or thousands of people lost their jobs, you know, um, you know, everyone would feel sorry for them, absolutely rightly so, um, because it's a horrible thing when you lose your job, and especially if it's a friend or family member that loses a job. But the reality is that when this could potentially cause, um, you know, not just hundreds or thousands, but potentially up to, you know, a couple million people to, to um, be out of a, a huge portion of their income, if not lose it completely. Um, then, you know, unfortunately, we don't see uh, enough people, um, you know, speaking out about that and, um, and and empathizing with them, you know, which is uh, which, which is what I decided to do because, you know, it affects a few of my own friends. And, uh, we, we, and we've read, we've all read the stories in the newspapers of the only fans creators who are buying their third house after a year and a half or whatever. But most, most creators are just scraping a living out of it, isn't that right? 
Well, I mean, look, yeah, absolutely. We always, I suppose, you know, we always seen the in the media a lot of the um, uh, the headlines where people are making millions, and and absolutely, there are people making a lot of money on it, but. The reality is that there's also a huge portion of it. You know, they, they, those people would be in the in the minority. The vast majority of people are making a um, modest income. Uh, some are making much less than that. Some might might be making uh, one or two hundred quid a week, um, and and a lot of the time they're they're just you know making that do. So, you know, people have this concept that you know everyone on it is going to be fine because they're all millionaires or whatever and, and that's not that's absolutely not true and and even those who do have managed to make quite a lot of money on it have very often spent you know a hundred hours a week for several months trying to uh trying to build it up and and uh and get to where they are now so you know but i mean most of my friends on it um you know i've got probably three or four friends on it now and uh you know they would make a pretty you know a little a little bit more than the average income mm. but i also know people on it who are just barely scraping by or even work in other jobs as well you know some of them use this as a sighting uh in order to um you know use maybe towards a mortgage fund or something as well as the regular uh, day job as well yeah. you know so it's not necessarily true that everyone on it is is a millionaire or making a huge yeah. amount of money you you asked in your twitter thread for people to be supported what kind of support can can anybody give them well, I suppose, um, you know, for me, um, I, you know, I, 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 I would be an ally to the sex work community because the number of my friends are in it. And, you know, the more people that uh, support the sex work community, um, even just, you know, vocally supportive, absolutely puts, normalizes it um, because uh, as a legitimate job, which it is. So it's important for people to uh, bear that in mind. You know, I mean, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm trans VJ, and, and the thing is that, you know, we have a huge amount, the LGBTQ plus community has a huge amount of allies in the street community, and a lot of um, the rights that we have now are thanks to a lot of people in the street community supporting us. And it's very important as well for people who aren't involved in the sex work community to also um, be you know be supportive of the sex work community, especially when they are in a situation like this, um, which isn't uh, a nice situation to be in. You know, I know I have friends also in retail, I have friends in hospitality and entertainment and so on that have all either taken pay cuts or completely lost their jobs during COVID, and it's 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 a really awful situation to be in. And you know, I can't imagine how difficult it is, and I feel sorry for them. But I also feel sorry as well for my friends on this platform who could potentially lose a, a huge portion of their income too. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, sex workers don't always get that empathy from from everyone. Okay. All right, Sasha, good speaking with you. Uh, thank you very much. There's no PUP, I guess, for, for sex workers. So how are they, how are they coping, as it were? Uh, thank you, Sasha Mackin, for the sex workers' rights activism. Like, it's nothing that will ever trouble you or me or most of us but there's the point, if so many people on OnlyFans are sex workers you're taking their job off of them and how would we feel says Saoirse, how would we feel about tens of thousands of people losing their jobs overnight, that's exactly what this is interesting comparison, 1850 just on the question about vaccinations and antibiotics the lady should ask the doctor at the vaccination centre. I was on an antibiotic when I got my second AstraZeneca and they gave me the jab. 
I wish the lady well because I was worried too. And that might be a good plan. Just book your vaccination and go along and there's always a doctor at the centre and ask them. That's maybe a good plan. Bernie says, I agree with PJ, you should know the vaccination status of the person sitting next to you. But I'd also like to know the status of people working as waiting staff when I'm eating out. I do not feel particularly comfortable with the idea of being served by someone who could affect me, or infect me rather. I understand younger staff have not had long to get vaccinated, and I'm not blaming them. But for my own sake, can we not have places with signs that say all our staff are vaccinated? That's from Bernie. 1857 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Here's some of the winners from the Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. Best Bar. Murphy's Rock Bar. Best Salon. Image Beauty Salon. Best Hairdresser. Fusion. Best Gym. District Health and Leisure. Best Workplace. Cope. Best Hotel. Photo Island. Best Burger. Son of a Bun. The Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths, and more with a 12 month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. Only on Cork's 96 FM. Yeah. Hello, Maureen. So, Love Island ended last night. It did, yeah. So the final was on last night and I suppose after um, a, f- a few days of finals there I heard in the GA commentary uh, there was the minor final, the under 20 final, the Love Island final and the senior final. I was laughing at that comment. So yeah, <laughs> so we had the Love Island final last night. Uh, Millie and Liam, they took top spot and like you announced the winners but then there's like another bit of excitement. So uh, I suppose each person in the couple gets an envelope one of them has £50,000 in it and the other has nothing and then yeah and then it's up to the person who has the 50 grand to either keep it for it's not split between them already no it's not and it's up to the person who gets the money whether they're going to give half it to their their other half or not now it was Millie got the 50 grand and she did give half it to to Liam so like Laura I'd say there'd be handbags at dawn (laughs) if you didn't get that money I know they'd be warm over it because in their so like the the fourth place was announced which was Kaz and Tyler third place was Faye and Teddy and then the the bottom two uh, which was Chloe and Toby and um, Millie and Liam have their chat before they find out who the winner is and during their chat uh, Liam asked Millie to be his girlfriend and it was just so sweet it was so so they're up for winning right yeah and they're not actually officially boyfriend and girlfriend yet? No, like they're kind of like exclusive and yeah, and then they become boyfriend and girlfriend because my mom was watching with me and she was like, wait, did he did he just propose to her? I was like, well, no, like not for marriage, <laughs> but just to be his girlfriend. I'm confused here. Yeah. Like they've been at it like rabbits for the last eight weeks, <laughs> most of these people. Yeah. So yeah, they waited till last night. You see, I suppose for Liam, Liam and Millie, they had a bit of a blip along the way. So you have this. What was place. that blip called? Was that Faye or something? <laughs> no, they had this place called Casa Amor. So what happens there is the girls Love go. Shack. Yeah, the girls go away for like a bit of, uh, I suppose, rest and all the rest of it, and rest. They come. Hang on a while now. Rest. Rest. 
<laughs> You're on a sunshine holiday for eight weeks, for pity's sake. Rest! <laughs> and then the lads go, the lads are sent off to cast them more. The girls come back, realise that the lads are all gone, and then they get new boys into the main villa, and the boys get girls and Casa more and there was a bit of a blip there where Liam kind of cozied up a bit to this girl called Lily and they well, ended if up they're thrown at you you might as well <laughs> but they ended up shifting each other and everyone was really sad that that happened um, and he kind of told her that you know he kind of liked her and all the rest of it yeah but himself and Millie were quite close and it, I think people were quite upset because they had something good going and then he did that and like even Jake who was another islander was shook that he that Liam did it but um, yeah so then <laughs> they came back to the the main villa that's one of my favorite nights of the whole like season in Island. <laughs> and I saw them shook it was <laughs> so they went back then to the main villa and they do the recoupling but you don't know if the lads are going to come in with a new girl or not so you could be left standing there totally on your own and then your your fella comes back with a new girl and you're like oh well so for Millie stayed loyal and Liam did well it appeared he had and then he sat down but then Lily was brought in even though she was being kicked out and she basically uh, announced to them stop. all <laughs> Why? Horrid Why? Like what's all this crack about? Why, why have you been glued to this with your mother of all people official food supplier to the Cork 96 election coverage yeah. Why? Why? Why have you? Why? Like you know what, PJ? It was a great distraction for the last few weeks, and it was something to look forward to each day. There was days where I might have missed it, and I'd have just caught up the next day or at the weekend. But I just feel like, yeah, it's just a distraction, and you know that a lot of people are watching it as well, and a lot of my friends would have, you know, enjoyed it. So mm. I think it was just something that everyone could enjoy together, even though you know, in the times that we've had. Now saying that, I've I've watched it ever before the pandemic hit, so mm. I, it's just something that I it, just. It, is a pure, a pure and utter distraction, I guess. Oh, completely. Well, there's some elements to it, though. This, are people now seriously questioning the whether it's proper to have this on? I think they are. And I mean, you know, there's been some, I suppose, you know, when when Caroline Flack passed away and that was really, really sad. And, and former Islanders have also have passed away as well and in tragic circumstances. And I guess that, that leaves people questioning, you know, is this show, is it right to have it on? Mm. Um, or, you know, is it something that, that should be scrapped? But I suppose, like, this year now, even at the start, there was a, an Islander, Sharon was there. And, and I remember hearing a few of them saying, you know, we're coming in here to find love. We're not looking for someone. We don't need someone, but we'd like to have someone to share our lives with. And I thought that was really good for people to hear that, that you don't need someone you know, to to go through life with. It's just nice to have a companion there to share, you know, you know, the ups and the downs with them. And mm. you said it yourself in your motto yesterday, I mean, life has its ups and its downs, but it's not hard all the time. So, um, do, do you want me to... Um, my mother got a great kick out of it. Do you want me to read it again? Do, go for it. I will in a minute. Okay. I have it in front of me. <laughs> so, like, do you think that Love Island is reaching the end of its tether now? There, there is a winter series planned but is it reaching the end of its tether? Um, I don't know. I think... I, t- I, I can't see it ending any time soon. I think it's quite good. And, like, they only introduced the winter version. Was it... There's only been one, like, winter season, as far as I can yeah. remember. So the um, one in South Africa. And they were, they were sitting around in hoodies. It's, it's not like... <laughs> it's not quite got the same appeal to it. Like the, <laughs> you know, You're right, I suppose. you getting a couple... You wouldn't be coupling up there and there'd be nothing to do with sex. But you keep it warm, like... 
I don't think it's coming to the end of its header at all because you never know who you're going to get each year and I think that's the beauty of it um, and you're, you're just seeing great characters on there and you're seeing a mix of highs and lows I mean look at Maura Higgins like I mean you know she's still going strong and she's brilliant so I just I think it's a great escape really for people and there's people who absolutely love it and then yeah. there's people who absolutely hate it and wouldn't watch it at all so mm. I don't know I, I can't see it ending anytime soon what would you think would you would you ever right. chance going in there PJ <laughs> <laughs> What a question. Got a text. What a question. I can imagine. I can just see it now. <laughs> now, if the villa was nice, it right? Is. Yeah, it is. It is nice, yeah. yeah. Would there be beer in the fridge? I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you're used to having a microphone, so there'd be just one of those on you at all times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll pass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mary Jane says thanks be to Jesus is over. Um, okay, I read this out yesterday. This actually came from an Instagram. It was Karen's Instagram. I was going through her page while I was chatting to her and I just particularly liked this one. And then some people spat their coffee when I read it out. And, and then someone sent it to me last night as a sticker. And I said I'd finish with it. And I suppose it is appropriate for Love Island. It is very appropriate for Love Island, in fairness. Life, as they say, is just like a willy. Sometimes it's up and some, control yourself. Sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. But sure, it won't be hard forever. Thanks, Morad. Thanks, Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Going to help you through the afternoon with all your favourite tunes from the biggest artists, all the latest TV and movie news and everything happening Side, I got it for you straight after the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Now I've read that little bit of wisdom out twice I don't propose to read it again but it's worth it 1850 Monica says Love Island was great crack and perfect distraction for the past eight weeks a distraction yeah I, we rang my daughter one night uh, the Queen Bee was ringing the daughter one night for a, a catch up as you do and she was FaceTiming her and all she got was Mother Love Island is on go away right friend, as you do. 1850-715-996. Some people really enjoying the show this morning. Uh, doesn't give a name here. Totally blown away. Good morning, PJ. Totally blown away by Phil Nannery. Yeah, he's an impressive man. Hope Simon Coveney heard him speak about his friend. Uh, and I could also listen to Jerry Killeen all day. Have a good Tuesday. Thank you. 1850-715-996. So starting in about 20 minutes, um, the Paralympics are getting underway. The opening ceremony is around lunchtime, our time. And I'm looking forward to it. The uh, channel to watch it on will be uh, Channel 4. And all four, they've got a number of different uh, platforms there to watch it. And RTE have a huge live package as well from the Paralympics. We have 29 athletes on our team this year. We did really well in Rio and really well in London and one expects to do well here 
as well. We have a couple of athletes with a very strong Cork connection. One from Cork, that's Neve McCarthy in the discus. And we also have one with a very strong Cork connection. She's from Kilkenny originally, but she will be, uh, she, she's going to UCC. So of course we will, we will claim her. But Susie Bourne is a disability activist and a blogger. And last week, she was saying how much she's looking forward to the Paralympics in, in quite a long Twitter thread. But there were one or two elements of it that were quite interesting. And Susie was effectively saying, look, watch the Paralympics, enjoy the sport. But while you do, there are a number of things to bear in mind. So I caught up with her in the last couple of days. Susie, it was a very interesting Twitter thread on the Paralympics and a few things that we should bear in mind while we watch them. Now we have a very strong team in Tokyo and we will do very well, we always do at Paralympics, but you referred to something called an able gaze and I wondered, what's that? It's how stories around people with disabilities are presented for the majority audience. They're made by people who are able-bodied. Those stories even you know how and I talk about drama as well you know even news stories they're produced mainly by able-bodied people and they produce them for the majority audience that's watching them and I suppose one of the fears I would have had in recent watching the Paralympics and I'm completely you know a huge fan I, I watch all sports I'm a real sports fan but I love the Paralympics I love watching um, elite sports people participate but I do get concerned when we sort of get into the like the pop idol, we go on their journey. We talk about, you know, there's the, the way in which people are positioned. They all have a backstory and you have to hear this backstory about how they overcame their disability to become this amazing sports person. And they're never treated, usually never treated in the same way as able-bodied athletes. Now, I'm not saying able-bodied athletes don't have a backstory. Of course they do. Everybody, you know, to get to where they're going to, to become as good as they are, Mm. there's a huge amount of effort um, involved. But when it comes to talking about disabled athletes, there's very often a whole hero worship. There's inspiration, what we call inspiration porn, which is this whole story around everything around disability has to be about how we inspire others. We're never treated the same as everybody else. Um, And we also don't talk about adversity in a non-pitying way. How do you mean mean by that, uh, adversity in a non-pitying way? We never talk about the fact that in Ireland, 60% of people with disabilities don't have a job. We don't talk about the fact that people with the waiting lists, when you're talking about Paralympics or whatever, you're not talking about the waiting lists that people with disabilities have for goods and services. The fact that we have no right to get our needs met is is all grace and favour going on waiting lists. And very often now, increasingly now, it's about fundraising for the basics. Mm. It's about all of these GoFundMe campaigns, rattling buckets, charities. The whole sphere of disability in Ireland is still grounded very much in charity. Mm. And you know in your programme you have lots of people calling you, looking to do fundraisers, running fundraisers for the most basic things wheelchairs, housing, transport, operations. Why are we doing, all of these things are basics. There should be basic rights that are met. And those things all still exist. And yet the way in which Paralympics has been pitched has been about, look at these people and how great they are. But we don't ever talk about 
the discrimination that people face um, generally, the way in which the majority audience who are watching this or may not be watching it, but hopefully many people will watch it. Mm. But how many, you know, they're not voting around these issues around disability. They're not demanding that everybody is treated equally. Are they thinking about disabled people when they put their hand in their pocket to put money in a bucket or click a link for a GoFundMe? Are they not asking? Why aren't they asking why somebody's needs aren't being met mm. as a right rather than as a charity? I think we've gotten to a point and we've done a hundred GoFundMe stories on the show over the years. I think we've gotten to a point, Susie, which is probably a point we shouldn't be at where we kind of say, ah, well, we might as well support this because if we don't support it, uh, nobody will. Yeah, and, we're, you know, we're very generous, PJ. The Irish people are really generous. Mm. But I would love to see that generosity turn into change and demanding change and that everybody in whatever sphere of life they're in just wants to include and works to include people with disabilities and ensure, and ensure people's needs are met rather than people continually having to beg for what they need for the basics. I've talked to uh, parents of children um, needing the most basic things like nursing hours, medicine, operations, simple things like getting something done to the family car and they have to go to a GoFundMe for it. The point you're making is, I think it's a twofold point, Susie, is one that you don't know that the wonderful athletes we're going to watch for the next couple of weeks, many of them have been through this too. Yeah. But also, we should look at a society that that forces people to do that. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a, a big issue, and I know I've read quite a bit, particularly after the London Olympics, a lot of the British athletes that took part in London were so buoyed by the spotlight that was put on them, the huge amount of accessibility that was introduced for the Games, etc. But then they landed back in reality after London, um, wherever they were in the UK. And we had people who were finding difficulty getting on and off public transport, people who were finding difficulty getting jobs. You know, these were all elite athletes and they experienced their disability bang on hugely after being celebrated and championed, rightly so for being elite sports people. They then experienced the reality of what it was like to live with a disability. And I often see that. And there's a there's a lot of people with disabilities who go to third level and they get a huge amount of support mm. to go to third level. Many of them get personal assistance. They get, you know, um, accessibility, accommodation, all of those sorts of things. The minute they graduate, they lose everything Yeah, because the state through the social services is not there and says they don't have the money to support people to go on to the next stage, which is employment. And that's why there's a huge amount and a very high level of graduate unemployment amongst people with disabilities. And I think there's a, a lot of similarities there. And, you know, and I know that in sporting organisations, they are looking at the welfare of elite athletes when they retire. And there's lots of mentorship and different types of programmes being brought in. One of the things they were talking about, even for the Olympians returning home, that they are going to run a a welfare programme for those Olympians so that they get the support that they need, particularly around mental health issues, to adjust to being finished in their career or going on to the next phase. And I think we very much have to look at that for the Paralympians. We also look at the impact of the Paralympics on disabled people. It's really interesting that there the other day, the Paralympics with a whole load of international organisations like the WHO 
um, have announced a campaign called We the 15. And it is a 10-year campaign that is going to look at and try and raise the issue of disability internationally. Now, I'm not sure how much it will actually do. It has a really good advert, which talks and shows disabled people in very ordinary activities of daily living. But it is also going on about lighting buildings up purple, which I'm sorry, that does nothing for nobody, right? All of these awareness campaigns that you always see about lighting yeah. buildings up. Or, and, and again, we, we support them here on the programme because various organisations come to us and say we're lighting up City Hall purple to raise awareness of something. Yeah. Yeah. Do you not like those campaigns? Not at all. No, I have very little time for any of that. I think that's more about the organisation trying to feel good about itself than actually achieving any change. Mm. That doesn't build a ramp. It doesn't um, achieve, uh, you know, accessibility in a service. It doesn't ensure that somebody is housed. Mm. You know, it makes some people feel good about themselves. Mm. And it also lowers the expectations of disabled people. If all you can expect is that your local um, notable building is going to be turned purple just because of who you are, rather than you are guaranteed your rights as an equal individual in Irish society and should not have to be on waiting lists for things, should not be begging for stuff. That's what we should be looking at rather than, um, you know, raising flags and turning things purple as being the, the only evidence of commitment. I got a suggestion from your thread as well, Susie, that a lot of people with disabilities don't actually watch the games. Why Why would that be? Because it's not reality for them. And I think it's... Um, and I think also that it makes people feel inferior about themselves. And um, there's an awful lot of jokes, you know, um, I get asked it, you know, when am I going into the Paralympics? As a sort of a, a jibe from some lad who thinks he's quite humorous and he's not, you know, I mean, there's, I think a lot of ab- disabled people feel that able-bodied people think that everybody should be, all disabled people should be in the Paralympics. I think there's also a confusion between Paralympics and Special Olympics. Mm-hmm between the participation elements and then the elite sporting elements. You know, not every disabled person can be in the Paralympics. There is a huge high standard of qualification for anybody who watches. They're not just taking part. They've all had to qualify. They've all had to achieve times to go. There are lots of disappointed people who couldn't qualify. We only we have 29 athletes going. There are 640,000 people in Ireland who have a disability. Okay, there's 29 people have gone to the Paralympics. So they are the best of the best competing against the best of the best. Some of whom will have had the people that they compete with will have much better opportunities, huge amounts of technology. I mean, I also have a criticism around Paralympics. Um, I suppose that disabled people feel that Paralympians have have access to things that they'll never have. So we have. Um, motor companies and other people who are working on carbon fibre limbs and chairs and all of these things to go faster, stronger, you know, that that equipment would never be available to the ordinary person with a disability. So that is why I think a lot of people don't watch because it doesn't reflect their reality. Now, there are lots of us who will watch and who do support and are great fans of people going over. Um, But, you know, I think it's probably important for people to realise that it isn't representative of disability. No, it is a competition amongst disabled sports people Mm -hmm. doing their best and, you know, being extremely skilled at what they do and, you know, and competing. 
And, you know, anybody who watches wheelchair rugby oh. at the end of these few weeks will know what competition is because they don't call it murder ball for nothing. <laughs> they do not. And, and you know what? It's a brilliant sport. And many of the sports we'll see over the next couple of weeks are fantastic sports in their own right entirely. One thing that is a bit baffling, and, and I think you believe it should be discussed more, is the classification system. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think people know how much of a threat it is to um, Paralympic athletes. Um, The better you become at your sport, the more in which your body gets trained, um, the more at risk you are of being removed from the sport. Um, There's also issues where they bring several similar type of disabilities together and that it in itself can be discriminatory and cause divisions. But there are many athletes who find themselves after years of training, competing, qualifying, that they no longer can go to the Paralympics. It doesn't mean that they're any less disabled. It just means that the category that they were in, they have become and determined by some medics and physiologists and others, they've been determined that they no longer fit in that category. And so there isn't another category that they can go into. That's unfair, I think. It's very difficult. And, and you know, you would see people who were in um, a category that would have higher needs of support or, you know, a higher level of disability. And, you know, there are people who will never leave that category. Um, and there'll be others that will come into it and then we'll be able to leave it. They will have been winning and it'll be, it'll be very difficult. But I do feel really strongly for people who have been reclassified and sometimes they have classification at the beginning of the Olympics. And you could be classified just before you take part at the beginning of the Paralympics. Sorry, you could just be reclassified at that just before you're about to compete. When you arrive in Tokyo, like... Yeah, that has happened at other games that people have been reclassified just before they're about to compete. Yeah. Like in, in whose language, Susie, is that fair? But that's what sport is. Sport is dirty, right? You know, we know that there, there are, from the people who dope to take part in sport, but there's also the, the politics of sport, the way in which it is administered, this is a feature of it, a specific, unique feature to Paralympics, but it is one that can cause huge emotional turmoil and damage um, and wreck people's lives. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying Paralympics should be about par- taking part. No, I believe it should be remain a sporting event yeah. and it needs to have rules and regulations. But the classification system is something that I think everybody needs to be aware of is a threat that lies over people's heads that they may no longer be able to take part. You know? well, well, certainly, uh, I would not have known what you've just told me, and I think many listeners would not have known what you've just told me, that a person arrives in Tokyo having qualified for their event within their class and can be reclassified there and then. There's a possibility that would happen. Now, generally, reclassification would happen at another Games hmm. or another, you know, international event or whatever. But it has, um, you know, I watched in, in Rio and where somebody had been reclassified just before. And there's Jason. I know Jason Smith, our sprinter. Yes. And, um, you know, he's been reclassified and it has caused huge difficulty and he's had to appeal. And that's the other thing. It becomes extremely medicalized. That's and that's not fair. That's not fair at all. Susie, all of that having been said, as we prepare to sit down and watch what will be a feast of 
of great sport and we have people in those 29 Irish uh, athletes who are going to do exceptionally well. For those of us who watch it from an able-bodied perspective, a last bit of advice for us. What awareness can we have as we sit down to enjoy some some fabulous sport? I think people should remember how much training goes into the participation of every one of those athletes and where they've come from and what they've had to do on a sporting level, not about the disability level only. And that's my fear is that people will only look at people with disabilities and they won't look at it as people as athletes. I think it's important that we see, um, you know, the participation of people um, as athletes at what they have achieved and also all the other people. And one of the things about Paralympics that I really um, like to see is people from countries. And I really wish the people from Afghanistan had got out to go to the games who qualified. Mm. And there are people from countries all over the world where it is dangerous to have a disability. You know, it is, you don't have access to, even we're lucky, and I I spend my time pointing out all the things we don't have in Ireland, Mm. but we're lucky in comparison to some other countries. And I think it is great to see people from countries and societies who actively discriminate against disabled people, who achieve, you know, their goal in life of taking part in the Games and watch for those stories as well, because I think it's so important that we, you know, see people from all over the world taking part and that people are celebrated for the sporting achievement and, and their personal strength in taking part. Well, Susie, thanks for being with us today. And I know you're a huge fan of sport and politics, which is another life entirely. So enjoy enjoy the Paralympics. Thanks very much, PJ. Susie Byrne actually has a blog, a Maman Poulet. Uh, Maman Poulet is her blog. And she writes about disability, she writes about sports, she writes about politics. And uh, I got to know Susie through election counts over the years where she, I don't know how the woman does it, but she can watch about 20 election counts all at the same time. But thanks. We we, talk, we talked about that in the last couple of days. That interview was recorded a few days ago. And since then, Susie has sent me an article, um, a newspaper article, uh, confirming what she was talking about there. There was, with three days to go before the Games opened, uh, there was a hundred or more athletes still waiting on their classification, which meant that these were a hundred or more athletes who had qualified to go to the Games, qualified to be there, but could actually lose out on their chance because they were being classified in Tokyo before the Games actually began. There were uh, 4,500 athletes and there's 22 sports and 530-odd events, 163 nations. We have three people with a Cork connection at the Paralympics. We've Neve McCarthy and Discus, another athlete, Mary Fitzgerald, who's from Kilkenny but studying at UCC. And we have a canoeist from Cork who's based in Galway, uh, Patrick O'Leary. Best luck to them to, and to all, indeed, of Team Ireland. Just before I go, I remind you, we are still streaming the biggest hits from your favourite stars uh, on the Cork Six Men Back Garden Festival. It's streaming online non-stop with Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist in sound this summer. Check it out on the app or go to 96fm.ie over these next couple of fine sunny days that we seem to have been guaranteed by the weather gods until at least the weekend and possibly into 
next week. Terry Killeen was recommending a make of mask. The company are called Vicura. V-I-E-C-U-R-A. V-I-E-C-U-R-A. Look it up, says he, and find out what you need to know. That's it for today. The programme edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. We shall see you tomorrow, just after nine. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.